I'm Dr. Jason Beatty. Welcome to the Tattooed Doctor podcast, where I will be attempting to change the world for addicts and anyone else currently suffering. I am spreading kindness, bringing knowledge, and giving you a new and progressive perspective on public health and safety. Join me in this journey, exploring hard truths, uncomfortable conversations, painful experiences, and personal growth. Welcome back to the second episode of the Tattoo Doctor podcast. This is Jessica Beatty, and I'm sitting here with the Tattoo Doctor himself, Jason Beatty. And today we are going to talk a little bit more about addiction as a disease. I hear a lot of people talking about addiction as a choice, and there's a lot of misconceptions about the diagnosis of addiction and how the treatment of addiction And Jason has a really unique perspective and is able to help people see it in a different light. So Jason, why don't we start by you telling us uh, a little bit about how you describe addiction to other people when you are trying to explain how it is a disease and not a choice. Sure. Um, So yeah, I get that question a lot or it's not usually formed in a question. It's more of a demand or a people telling me what it is. <laughs> it's a choice. It's a choice for them to pick up and so forth. But if you if you understand addiction the way that I do, and you know, I'm not saying I'm <clears throat> the foremost expert on addiction, but I, I suffer from the disease myself and I got what little training there was available um, in the medical community. So I do kind of understand it from a different perspective than a lot of other physicians or medical professionals. And so my What I'm about to tell you is not, uh, again, it's not something I learned in a textbook. This is years and years and years of observation of both uh, personal family members along the way, people I grew up with, and patients for many years. And so what I find to be the most common amongst all addicts that I meet, the number one form of abuse that seems to create addicts is neglect. And again, it can be from parents. Uh, It can be as little as a father that has two boys and one of those boys is favored and the other one is not. Um, It does something to a small child and all the studies out there will will show you that a child that's that's been neglected or abused, they don't they don't stop loving the parents or the abuser. They generally stop loving themselves. And so now you take these these small young children that are in a a terrible uh, abusive home or a neglectful home or something along those lines and they don't realize that there's an issue or there's a problem until they step outside and see the other kids at school or other kids on the playground and and as i've said before uh with you know clean clothes they don't smell they their dad took them on vacation last month i mean just the kids start to realize they don't fit anywhere they're not the same as everybody else and so uh, they they tend to get out into the into the schools and they gravitate to the kids that have a similar background to them, the ones that people call derelicts or losers or the stoners or whatever. You know, they've been labeled everything under the sun except damaged, and uh, that's basically what what has happened. Is they they have been emotionally stunted. They don't quite um, understand how to deal with certain emotions, and all they know something that is unique across the board is that they don't matter. No matter what they do, what they accomplish, they'll never be good enough and the world would be better off without them. So that's what 
the vast majority of true addicts uh, suffer from daily. This is the code, as I call it, that goes off in the head. It's a, it's a constant running code that says, you're no good, you're no good, you're no good. And so eventually those kids will stumble upon something that causes that to stop for a moment, whether that's alcohol or heroin or methamphetamines, whatever it is, it makes that stop. And to somebody that spends the large portion of their life wanting to end themselves or self-loathing, it's a relief. And so unless you've lived it or you understand what that's like, truly what that's like to loathe yourself enough that you want yourself gone, um, you really can't judge. You can't you can't tell them how it's going to be. You can't tell them, well, I was addicted to cigarettes and I quit. It's, I know what it's like. No, you don't. It's, it's, a, it's way different. The other thing that happens a lot is, uh, and medical professionals and the you know, criminal justice system are notorious for doing this, is they, they lump two, two sets of people in together. So yes, we do have the guy that had a wonderful upbringing. There was never anything wrong and, uh, or gal, uh, and, and everything was perfect growing up. No abuse, no nothing. Um, they broke their leg when they were 20 years old, and a doctor that was a little bit uh, you know, free with the, the prescription pad uh, got them hooked on Oxycontin. And over time, their tolerance grew and grew and grew, and now they're on fentanyl patches, and it's a big mess. Those people are physically dependent. And after 20 or so years, they might become somewhat psychologically dependent, but that's way different than what we're talking about with this person that truff- suffers from true substance use disorder. These are folks that are, have been, they've taken it to the point where now their body will, re- will, will go into withdrawal if they don't have it. With those folks, it's actually not that difficult to get them off of the narcotic or the opiate. And then, honestly, most of them will not think of it again, maybe in passing briefly, but it's not the same drive uh, and the same uh, pull, I guess I would say, that uh, a true addict has for their drug of choice. So when we, it's really dangerous when we, when we put those two in the same category because if you think for one moment that that's the same person and you, get, you, you figure out a way with using sublocate or something along those lines to get them off of that narcotic and then you just, you and, and they now believe that they've been cured of this disease, uh, you're both in for a rude awakening. So if that person 10 months down the road um, starts to crave again and you've told them that you just gave them a cure and everyone's you know doing well on it and addicts don't go back to using and they do that actually could be a death sentence for that addict that addict would then just believe there was literally no hope because you gave them a cure and now it's not working so they must be hopeless so we have to be really careful about how we treat these folks we have to be very careful about the things that we say to them as providers uh, and truthfully as anybody that knows me and knows our patients, the number one thing we use to treat them isn't uh, medication. It's, it's trust. It's, um, we give them some self-worth. We try to uncover the things that are beautiful about them, and we try to make them see that or at least polish it enough so that, so that over time they can feel some pride over it because every one of us needs to have some kind of purpose, right? So for the longest time, we've tried to uh, punish We've tried to beat it out of them. We've tried to incarcerate, take their children. Uh, I mean, at, at some point, when do you say, okay, it, it obviously isn't a choice. Who's going to give up their kids for, to get high? Who's going 
Who's going to give up their freedom? Who's going to give up their life? Nobody. And nobody. And, and I love it when people say, well, nobody in their right mind will. And I stop them. Yep, that's right. Listen to what you just said. Nobody in their right mind. That's because this is a psychological disorder, which needs medical treatment. It needs to be treated as such. And the people that suffer from it need to be treated like patients, not like criminals. So... They, I'm going to interrupt you for just sure. a second because I think that it really is very poignant. There's this meme that circulates and it says the real gateway drug is trauma. And and it doesn't have to be trauma in the sense, like Jason said before, that it's abuse in a, a physical or sexual sense, which, which often it is. But really, it can just be that neglect. It can just be a verbal type situation. But that is so simple when we talk about gateway and why, what creates an addict and, and how it starts. And that's really what it boils down to. And someone who is a non-addict can really struggle to understand the drive and the, the psychological pain that underlies addiction. I know that I still struggle with it and I talk to addicts every day and it's just a really difficult thing to understand unless you go through it yourself. And it's so frustrating for people to to hear you say, oh, well, I know so-and-so and, and, you know, they just stopped drinking and they were fine. They didn't have to take a medication to help them and they just went to meetings or, you know, and, and, and we have to remember that, as Jason said, that there is a very different kind of situation for each addict so there you know there's people in a category that yeah they might not need as intensive treatment or a medication to help them but we can't just lump them all in one category and say hey this is what's going to work for everybody um and I just wanted to draw attention to that because I think that was a really poignant thing that he said about trauma and then also about you know categorizing people who have a substance use disorder so I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just wanted to kind of touch on that and make sure that we really brought that home. No worries. And so we have these folks that we have these folks that have not only are they coming from a household that probably doesn't understand addiction or the parents often suffer from it themselves or the grandparents or somebody in the home. Uh, and if you don't understand it, you know, uh, alcoholics like to say they're different than addicts and so forth. And it's really not whether you I always have a saying that whether you snort it. Um, screw it, drink it, uh, shoot it up. It doesn't matter. It's all addiction and it all comes from a place of pain. So all of this stigma behind addiction, whether it's heroin or what have you, uh, it comes from years and years and years of people misunderstanding. The same thing with marijuana and the safety of marijuana. We can talk about that in another episode, but um, I recommend it highly for patients um, that are suffering from substance use disorder. It's literally the lesser of all evils. Most of them can function quite beautifully and not end up in prison if it's legal where they're at and the police are, are you know, okay and, and not trying to torture them anyway. So, you know, um, there, are, there are ways to save the addict, like Jess was saying, that, that there are ways to, to treat this disease. There are multiple different ways to treat it. The trouble is we've only focused on one for many, 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 many years. And that's a 12-step abstinence um, model. And again, I'm not knocking it. People say, oh, you just hate the 12 steps. Absolutely not. You know, at one point it saved my life too. Um, you know, it was the only thing available. It didn't keep me sober uh, and, and it didn't keep a lot of people I know sober. But there were a few that, that were abstinent for 20 or 30 years. 
but they were few and far between. And when you talk about a disease or a disorder that has a death rate that kills currently faster than the bubonic plague or the Black Death uh, did many years ago, uh, we can't really take our chances any longer on that particular modality. So those of us that are in the know, and truthfully in the know, meaning we have medical training, we've read uh, you know, about addiction, we've suffered it ourselves, we've studied addicts for years, you know, and treated them medically, <clears throat> you know, we know that there's a lot more to treating addiction than A, uh, sitting in a room with other addicts and talking about the disease, hoping that that's what's going to cure it, or just taking a medication to keep you from from drinking or, or taking opiates or what have you. There's a lot more to it. And the, what we focus on at Freedom Recovery Center and, and what I've tried to teach other um, addiction specialists around the, the, the state is that you have to put forth a little bit more effort than you would the average patient, meaning these folks don't know how to not manipulate you. They don't, you're going to get upset as a physician because they're, they're going to lie to you. Well, I can't, how do you know? There's that stupid joke, you know, how do you know when an addict is lying? Their lips are moving. I mean, I've heard that so many times and I get a chuckle out of it because I'm an addict. But the truth, truth be told is if you were five years old and uh, you were running around a, a corner as a child and you knocked the cup off of the end of the night stand or the coffee table, and your one of your parents or your abuser beat your ass to the point where you were bloody or thought that you were going to die or belittled you in a way that made you feel like you were worthless as a five or four or six-year-old child, what have you. The next time you broke something, do you think you'd tell the truth and be honest? Do you think that honesty is, is the best policy in that child's eyes? But the law enforcement would see that person as a criminal because they're not honest. But remember, they are not honest because it saved their ass and that's what they learned as a young child. So remember, that's what they learned. Their upbringing was different than those of you out there that think, well, you know, I was addicted to alcohol for, you know, when I was in high school or, and I quit. Good for you. I, I, that's fantastic. And if you're somebody that was a down and out drunk and the 12-step program saved you and you've been sober for 30 years, that is fantastic. But again, too many people are dying or being incarcerated for life that suffer from this disorder. So my take on it is I'm going to give them the best possible chance. So if abstinence is the way to go, that's absolutely fine. But we're going to talk about substance use disorder treatment medically also, just to make sure they know that not everybody can do it this way. Uh, in fact, only about 1% of people that's currently suffer that we know of, that's, that's you know, documented, um, actually actually have a two-year or more sobriety. Now, again, if abstinence is the only thing you're going to measure for success in this disease, you're automatically going to fail. So that's the problem with a lot of our the grants that are available out there. I, I have refused to take a lot of them solely because they're looking at the wrong things. They want us to record the wrong information, the stuff that's not important. It's all, it's all economically based and not... Um, not based on humanity, unfortunately, and I'm not knocking them. That's just the way the world is currently. But the truth be told is what we look at when somebody comes through our doors isn't how long they can go without using. It's what percentage does that use decrease because that person is now feeling better about themselves. A lot of folks focus on move, remove the drugs and alcohol, the person gets better. That's absolutely backwards. That's absolutely backwards. You start to get the person better first and then the drugs and alcohol use starts to go down. So uh, to give you an example, old model versus new model. 
I have patients that will come to us that we're using every single day for years and years and years. So think about that, using heroin every single day for years. So let's just look at it for one year. A patient uses for every day, we'll call that 100% of the time. 30 days out of 30 in a month is 100% of the days. That's a 100% increase in the possibility of harm to them or those around them because this disease tends to hurt innocent people too. So... That person comes to our clinic, they start on Suboxone, they're doing very well, they stop using the drug that's killing them, they get a job, they're doing fantastic. Their parents call us and say, thank you so much, I certainly appreciate everything you guys are doing, I got my son back, or my daughter back. But they use for a night, they might, you know, got have a friend that comes in out of town, has a few Ritalin, they might snort them, they might drink for an evening, something. Nothing really bad happens, nobody goes to jail, nobody wakes up with any... Uh, communicable diseases, uh, and it, it, it's okay. But that person comes to our clinic, and now all of a sudden, because the old model has taught them that they have failed, um, they're bawling, or they're ready to use again and again and again because of the shame and the guilt that is brought on by the thought that they have just failed managing this disease, right? Because to them, the old model teaches it's all about willpower and it's all about friends and it's all about, and I'll give them some of that, but it's, it's, it's not just that. You can't just have willpower to manage diabetes. You have to have medication. You have to have proper guidance. It's not just about willpower. No different with this disease. So now this person's in my office crying and crying and, I, and I'm trying to explain to them, listen, stop, stop this. You just told me that before you came here, you were using 30 out of 30 days every single month. That's 100%, like I said, 100% of the time. Now you've just gone six months and you used for two days. Now I want you to do the math in your head. That's well over a 98% reduction in use. I don't know that very many other folks that are managing very many other diseases that manage it that well. Yet that addict, for the most part, by their family doctor or any other physician would see them as failing. Failing. When in fact, we should be celebrating the fact that we just had a 98% reduction in use, a 98% reduction in possible harm to them and those around them. Yet we're going to punish them. You You should see their faces when you say that to them, when you point that out and you say, let's shift the way that we are looking at the 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 relapse or however you want to whatever you want to call it and their faces almost light up the 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 shift that happens in perspective on what just happened they think that they're you know like he said failing and and they've started over on day zero of recovery and you know and and they apologize and they they are ashamed and then you shift that perspective and you say, wait a second, give yourself some grace here. This is amazing. You have this 98% you know, reduction in use and their face changes. They change. Their self-esteem changes. The way that they look at themselves changes. And they actually start to have a little bit of appreciation for the fact that they've done some work. They've actually put the work in and they've made some changes. And it's awesome. And like Jason said, you know, people... Um, you know, say addicts are lying all the time. And, and as he pointed out, it's the survival mechanism that they have ingrained in themselves. They lie because that is literally how they have learned to survive. But when you are open 
to talking about things like a relapse or use, they stop lying to you. I mean, I'm not naive enough to think that that they, it still doesn't happen sometimes, but your, you know, your friends or your family or your patients or who, whatever it is that you, whoever it is that you're talking to will come in and they will stop lying to you because they'll start to say, okay, this happened and I need to figure out why and how to keep it from happening again or, you know, actually be open to having that discussion instead of coming in and feeling, you know, worthless and, and ashamed. And it's amazing to see that shift. And that's a perspective shift that I feel like everyone should have, not just the addict themselves, but us as professionals and as a family member and as a friend or anyone who is interacting with people that struggle with addiction. So um, I, I I just wanted to, to really point that perspective shift out because that's huge. And that was huge for me when I was learning about addiction and, and as we evolved in, in the way that we treated our patients, that was a really, really big shift for me. Um, I want Jason to... Use an example that I feel like is a very clear example of addiction as a disease. Because when you think about disease, what is a disease, right? So we have something that we struggle to control and things are negatively impacting our lives because of this disease and we still continue to suffer from it. So if you think about any other chronic diseases, high blood pressure, diabetes, mental health disorders like depression, all of those things are really difficult to control. And a lot of people will take medications to help control them. And, and so, and and we don't really question that. Whereas addiction, we question that as a disease. You think about a lot of mental health problems. Right. And so, and so we look at addicts who have suffered and have lost their children or are in the court system or in jail or have lost their driver's license and you think, why would you not get help or why wouldn't you go to rehab or why are you still using? And it's so difficult to understand, but it's a disease. They are continuing to suffer from the disease even though it is negatively impacting their life. So I want Jason to give a comparison between diabetes as a chronic disease and addiction as a chronic disease, because I really do think it helps a lot of people see the similarities. Yeah. So I like to use this comparison because a lot of folks, um, it, like Jess said, it, it really helps to clarify what and help hopefully make you feel bad if you have, you know, made an addict feel bad about their disease. So... Both of these diseases, diabetes and the disease of addiction, are very, very difficult um, diseases to manage. And type 1 diabetes is, is a disease that that person didn't ask for uh, and didn't really bring upon themselves, just as substance use disorder, true substance use disorder, uh, is the same. It's not something that they asked for, nor is it something that they brought upon themselves. They don't really understand it. So when you when you have to in order to manage diabetes you have to use insulin to control your blood sugar so oftentimes when you eat and it breaks down you're, you're breaking down your food your blood sugar elevates and in order to bring that down your pan your pancreas has to release insulin to to bring down your blood sugar if your pancreas isn't working properly in the disease of diabetes um, you need to give yourself insulin or what we would say exogenous insulin from another source not something you're making on your own 
and it becomes life and death for, for most diabetics. So the trouble is not every diabetic manages their disease perfectly. In fact, quite the contrary, <laughs> the vast majority of them manage it well enough to keep themselves alive for many years, but it's not perfect and they'd be the first to tell you that. So sometimes what can happen is they give themselves a little bit of insulin and they forget to eat or they don't eat enough and their blood sugar plummets. So at that point, they need some kind of sugar um, and they feel like to save their own lives. And so when I'm talking with an addict about the guilt they feel from some of the things that they've done when they were using and when they were suffering from their disease... Um, I will often do that very comparison and then say to them, you know, if you had that disease, diabetes, instead of your own, and your blood sugar plummeted like that because you had accidentally or mismanaged your disease, uh, and you felt you were going to die and needed sugar right now, would you not steal a cupcake from the very person you love the most on this planet? And the answer is always yes. And would you feel guilty about that for the rest of your life and beat yourself up over it? And the answer is almost always no. Hmm. but I don't understand why you're beating yourself up over the things that you did from this other disease because they're literally very similar. In order to manage it, you have to have education, you have to have likely medication, um, you need a doctor that understands what the heck's going on and you need support just like you would through diabetes. But the difference between the two, and I, this is the part that blows my mind, is that, and I've given this example before, if a person that suffers from alcoholism um, mismanages their disease and has a drink of alcohol and gets behind the wheel of a car and along the way, heaven forbid, they strike a family and they kill someone. Well, as we all know, that alcoholic is going away for a very, very long time. Now, I'm not saying that he shouldn't be punished. I'm not going to get into all of that. What I am going to say is if you type into your computer browser, um, motor vehicle accident caused by diabetic and then leave it at that, you will see hundreds and hundreds of stories. Now, again, I'm not picking on diabetics, but I want to give you this scenario and it happens and I have patients that have actually done this. They haven't hurt anybody, but they've had to pull over or they've been pulled over or been hospitalized. So somebody starts their day out, uh, they're kind of in a hurry to get to their doctor's appointment or hair appointment or what have you, uh, and that, that person is a diabetic, and they give themselves a little bit of insulin, knowing because the timing-wise, I just got to do the insulin now, when that toast pops up, I'll grab that, head out the door, and eat it on the way. Well, they forget about the toast because they realize they're running 10 or 15 minutes behind, they got to get there, and they hop behind the wheel, and their blood sugar plummets to the point where they pass out on the highway, they hit the same family, and they kill somebody. The newspaper reports are way, way different uh, for that scenario than they are for uh, the alcoholic who mismanaged their disease. So both of these people knowingly mismanaged their disease, yet only one of them was punished, likely with a long, long prison sentence, where the other one was probably toted as the poor, poor, poor diabetic or poor, poor person, you know, what have you. So we have to put this into perspective. You can compare this disease to just about any other, and that's why medically we've actually chosen to call it a disorder and a, you know, and a disease. So uh, there's a reason for that. So the two biggest things that I see, the differences between managing diabetes or the disease of diabetes versus the disease of addiction or substance use disorder, is that A, for many, many years, the medical community has understood diabetes, therefore the person suffering from it generally has a good grasp of what's happening to them and how to manage it. So that's got to be comforting to most folks. 
Whereas the folks that are suffering from substance use disorder haven't had that luxury. Not as much money was put into studying this, not as much as known about it. Because again, for years and years and years, we just decided to say it was a choice because that was the lazy thing to do instead of putting any time or money or effort into it. So now we fast forward and this is what we have today. The second part that I that is different is that you don't hear people, you know, you heard my story about the diabetic in the coma and in the car accident and so forth. But even with that happening, you don't have doctors talking about filthy diabetics or pharmacists not wanting to give them their insulin at the window because they look down their noses at them. Uh, you know, that doesn't happen with, with diabetes, but it sure happens a lot with substance use disorder. I mean, if you don't believe me, ask any addict what kind of a relationship they've had with their doctor in the past or their pharmacist or what have you. Yes, there are some beautiful souls out there uh, that are, and, and things are changing dramatically. But up to this point, again, remember, it's not because there were terrible people out there. It's because it was misunderstood. So if somebody's standing at your window in your pharmacy and they're picking up a, you know, what you believe to be a drug that's just replacing another drug, you might look down there your nose at them. But if you truly understand addiction and take the time to see what it does and what happens to the patient when they're on it and why the clinics are doing what they're doing with them and ask the right questions, you might become an ally instead of an adversary in the fight against the opiate addiction uh, here in this, uh, or the opiate crisis, quote unquote. It's really an addiction crisis. We've just chosen to pick on opiates for a minute because that's where the money's at, I guess. But anyhow, I'm, I'm rambling on. I hope that answers your questions. You know, I, those are those are great questions, Jess. They're ones that we get a lot and they're the two of the two or three of the biggest arguments I have when I'm in a group of, you'll see my fingers doing the quotations, educated people. So anyhow, uh, you guys all know where to find me. If you don't, you have anything else to add, Jess, to close? No, I don't think so. It's really just what I wanted to, to touch on tonight was, you know, really bringing it home about addiction as a disease and, and what causes it and uh, why we, you know, when we qualify it as a disease, why we treat it the way we do in, in, in a very well-rounded sort of integrative type of way. Because with a disease, you can't just throw one thing at it and expect it to work. So, you know, when you have a disease, you have to come at it from, you know, different angles, education, medication, um, compassion, uh, you know, therapy, all those things are so important. And so when you accept addiction as a disease, it changes the way that the treatment happens and it changes the outcome. That's the most important part for, for the people who are coming in and getting, getting the treatment is the outcome. Because it's sustainable, unlike abstinence. We've proven that for years that it's not sustainable. So our courts are still (laughs) court ordering people to go to meetings and court ordering people into abstinence. And I just keep trying to explain to them, you cannot court order this disease away. You can't do it. So it really does create a, a, a more sustainable result <clears throat> for these folks. So again, as always, you can get a hold of us, ask questions, and uh, we'll be trying to do these podcasts once a week. So we'll be back next week with another topic. Thank you so much for listening, everyone out there. Be good to each other. Stay out of harm's way. <laughs>